every word has to have a place in a radio script. Anything that's superfluous is wasted time. We are more powerful than a genetic machine. I simply refuse to be intimidated by complex information. A lot of radio is not about writing, it's letting other people do the storytelling for you. You want to just seize their ears and pull them in. And they have to keep listening. They just have to keep listening. Hello, I'm Natasha Mitchell and I am a presenter and a science journalist at ABC Radio National. I present a show called Science Friction and I have been a broadcaster and a journalist since 1997. And today I'm going to give you a masterclass on writing for broadcast. Hello and welcome to the masterclass. I'm Louisa Lim and I teach journalism at the University of Melbourne. Each week, we're having a master of audio journalism, talking through one aspect of the craft. This week, we're talking writing for broadcast with Natasha Mitchell from the ABC. Natasha, your programme, Science Friction, is a long-form science show, but it's really about storytelling. And every week, you manage to kind of unpack one issue using sound so creatively. I mean, tell us about your process. How do you actually go about writing when you come back, you know, you've got this pile of tape. How do you go about starting to get that into some kind of order? It's a sort of process of ferreting through the audio that you've got. And I've done lots of different radio styles over the years. I've done live daily shows. I've done built programs, single conversation, half hours. But I really love playing with all the elements of the palette of radio. I love playing with the sounds that I've collected. I love playing with archival material. And most of all, I love talking to people and interviewing people about what they do or their lives. So when you're making a feature, you come back to your studio with often hours of material and you've got to try and work out what to do with it. And you've been there. I mean, it's it's kind of epic, isn't it? It's like sculpting something out of stone or something, you know, it's this whittling away and slowly building hopefully a powerful narrative that will really capture people, really engage people. So you have said that your starting point is often the starting point. It's often the first minute. I mean, do you have that in your mind when you come back or how do you find that first minute? Sometimes I do. I personally find you know, starting to lay down a story from the top and then I kind of craft sections of it. But I find the top quite a good place to start, oddly enough, because for me, radio is about great sound and powerful stories and powerful information. And what you want to do at the top of a show is captivate people you want to entice them you want to just seize their ears and pull them in and they have to keep listening they just have to keep listening and so that's what I'm doing in that first minute usually trying to captivate people with the possibility of the next half hour so there's an example that I heard and it really struck me because the thing that struck me was these were all pieces of tape that I had actually heard before. You know, I'd seen them on Twitter, I heard them, but then when I heard the way that you put them together, it was just so arresting. And this is the story that you did on eugenics. 
And the top of that, I should maybe issue a warning. It's mm. quite startling. It's quite distressing, actually, to listen to. But maybe we can have a listen to that. Yeah. You will not replace us! You will not replace us! You will not replace us! Hi, it's Natasha here. I'm wondering what went through your mind when you saw those scenes of hatred on the streets of Charlottesville recently, of neo-Nazis and white nationalists marching under swastika banners. Then came that horrific footage of a young man slamming his car into a crowd of anti-fascist protesters. Bodies splayed and blood shed, one young woman killed. A lot of people got hit. A lot of people got hit. It does not look good. It does not look good. These shocking scenes started with the removal of a Confederate statue. But there is a whole lot more to the history of Charlottesville. In fact, little known is that one of the key pillars of Nazi ideology found its feet in that town decades before it did under Hitler. And that's the incredible story I want to share with you on Science Friction over the next two episodes. So how did you decide to start it that way? It's interesting. I'm listening back to that. I don't know about you, but I have a really visceral, all the hairs on my arm have gone up listening to that, even now, and I've heard it many times. And tears came to my eyes as I was listening to that. I don't know. How, how do you feel when you hear that? I mean, I was thinking about your use of language and just... There were few words, but they were so effectively deployed when you said body splayed, bloodshed. Mm. And then it was all the background sound that was doing the storytelling so, so effectively. You don't really need to say much. On the other hand, I got a listener write to me and this was on the radio and it was on a Saturday morning not really the right time. So if you're listening as a podcaster, Mm. you would be listening and and you'd be carried by that. But on the radio, on air, on a Saturday morning, someone had to switch it off Mm. because it felt too gratuitous. They wrote to me and then they went and listened to it because I said, you really want to hear this story. It's a really amazing story of Heartland America in the last century and the recent history of eugenics in the West. And she did. She went and listened to it. But it was interesting to get that feedback. But I thought that the way that you used the sound was so effective. Were you conscious of trying to say less and let the sound do the storytelling for you? Isn't that the gift of radio? That... Unlike writing for print, where you, the author, the journalist, you've got to put all the words down. In radio, you've got sound and voice to work with. You've got all these other elements. And that's the power of radio, that other things can tell the story for you. The actual people who have the lived experience can tell the story for you. And so with scripting, I always say that less is more. It truly is with radio. And you will start writing a script. You'll start shaping your show. You'll have the grabs. You've listened to all your material. You've pulled out the bits that are just, just get you. And you also know they're going to help you tell the story. And then you start writing your script around those pieces. And you often start by writing a lot down. Tap, 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 tap. You're typing, typing. You've got all this stuff you want to share. But in fact, what you need to do is strip it right back, don't you? You've got to just pull words out, every word, 
has to have a place in a radio script. Anything that's superfluous is wasted time. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that we have you on to talk about writing, but actually a lot of radio is not about writing, it's letting other people do the storytelling for you. And I think there's a really good example of the way that you did that was also in your piece about the secret life of children. I really like the way in which you used the interviewees to tell the story, and I think we have an example of this. We have a little piece of sound where you hear one of your interviewees and she's first talking about her imaginary villages of friends yeah, that yeah. lived in the bathroom. Yeah, this is a story about imaginary friends. I created little festivals for them, so around Moomba time or Melbourne showtime, they would have rides. So they would swarm onto my little feet and I'd do little circles, like roller coaster rides for them. I remember the feeling of being happy and knowing that they would be okay because I was there to look after them. So you were like Gulliver in Lilliput in a way? All, all I remember from Gulliver's travels is that they tied him to the floor. <laughs> Oh, my poor villagers. They would never tie me to the floor. They loved me too much. Well, well. What have we got here? Help! Help! Don't eat me! Don't eat me! Hello there. Part of what it tells us is that relationships are really, really important. Come now. Don't let my size frighten you. And they are central to our existence. They are a, a fundamental significant part of human psychology and, and human functioning. And frankly, you can never have too many. So imaginary companions kind of fit in with all these other kinds of relationships that are so important to us. In a way, it would be almost weird, given all of the things that we fantasize about or use pretend play for, if we didn't create imaginary relationships like these. Ah, splendid, splendid. <laughs> Two-thirds of children at some point in early childhood have an imaginary companion. He's on our side. There's nothing to fear. The Mad Mountain's on our side. And you can still find imaginary companions in 10-year-olds in and in 14-year-olds. And in fact, there are adults who confess to still having them. I forgot to introduce you to my imaginary friend. She's just sitting here on the other microphone. Would you like to say something? No. Sorry, she's feeling shy today. That's all right. She can warm up. But one of the things that you're often told when you start writing for radio is show, don't tell. And I thought this was a really good example of it. But when I was starting, I remember I was never quite understood how to use that. How do you show, not tell? Mm. I mean, how do you put that into action? Show, don't tell. Well, it works in various ways, doesn't it? It works when you're in the field and you've got your microphone open, live, recording, and you're capturing an interview. What are all the sounds in that person's environment or in their day? or in terms of the context in which you're interviewing them within, what can they tell about a person? So it's really important to try and record as much sound as you can rather than just walking into a room, sitting down, doing the interview. Try and capture all those sounds that 
a part of our lives that somehow describe our lives. And then in terms of scripting, I always argue that radio is the most visual medium. My TV colleagues would disagree, but it truly is, wouldn't you think? Like it's all about helping them paint a mental picture. They experience what you have to share with them in the interior of their head. This oral texture enters their ear holes and occupies the space in their cranium. And they're painting word pictures. You're helping them through word pictures. So actually writing for radio can be very visual too. It's very, it can be quite descriptive. You're looking for the texture of an experience. But you don't want to be too floral about it either because that's just cheesy, hey? (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the best examples in your work that I have heard when you did that is in the piece about eating fake meat. (laughs) (laughs) But it has that, well, how do you describe it, that meaty taste? It's uh, somewhat metallic. There is a sulfur type of tone in it, I guess. Mm. It has this sort of caramel taste, especially if you brown it, which we typically refer to in food technology as the uh, Maillard reaction, which is dependent on a very specific combination of sugar and protein. That caramelizing reaction, that browning, was exactly the same as in meat taken from a cow. Before beef, Mark engineered meat of another kind, particularly blood vessel grafts for hearts damaged by coronary disease. His long-time specialty is vascular biology. But in 2014, this tissue engineer presented the world with the first beef burger grown in a lab, not on a cow. And he had the backing of Google co-founder Sergey Brin and others to do it. And what's probably even more important is that the mouthfeel was very similar to the mouthfeel that you get from a regular hamburger. So how are you feeling right now? Do you have an immediate visceral reaction to the possibility of meat being made in a lab? If Mark Post offered the hamburger he's described, would you say, yeah, I'm up for it? Or would it be a case of, no way? Well, this might all become an option sometime very soon. So I like the way you really throw to the listener. Yeah. And you do that quite consciously, don't you? Someone told me, I think it was Robin Williams, who's a very famous science broadcaster here in Australia at the ABC, when I was a cadet, write for one listener. You are broadcasting to one listener. You might be broadcasting to thousands of people at once, As a student, develop a cult podcast. I know a previous student has done so. And you might get millions of listeners. But you are always writing for one listener. There is one person right there with you listening to your content. And that, I feel, changes your entire approach to how you make a show. It changes how you write a script. And I often use those sort of rhetorical questions. I mean, sometimes they can be overdone, but just every now and then I'll just turn it back to the listener. I remember when I started, one of the things that I struggled most with was deciding what do I describe and what do I leave for the interviewees to describe? What do I say and what do I leave for them to say? What's your kind of rule of thumb with that? Well, what's your rule of thumb with that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm... I mean, I guess you want them to tell the story as much as possible. And often what you want from them is the visceral stuff, the how does it feel, Mm. you know, how does it make me feel, that kind of thing. Yeah, and it's kind of a feeling that you develop too, isn't it? People just sometimes have a way of saying something 
that feels, yes, visceral, it's rich with emotion, or there's a really powerful pause that lingers and you need to hear that moment to understand the gravity of the story, or there's a sort of poetry to how they've described something, or they've just nailed something. It just feels right. And that is a habit you form. And I reckon that habit comes from listening to a heap of radio. You cannot write for radio unless you listen to a whole lot of radio or podcasts or audio or whatever form you get it in. It's a feeling you develop. It's a habit you form. One thing I think you're very good at is taking very complicated ideas and really boiling them down to such simple language. I've noticed that you don't use fancy words at all. You don't use jargon at all. But it's never boring. Damn, that's my secret. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Let's talk about a, a particular example. Let's talk about your program that you did on epigenetics, where you interviewed uh, people whose parents or grandparents were Holocaust survivors, and mm. you were looking at the the effect on them. I think we have a segment starting with an interview with Rachel Yehuda, who was a professor of neuroscience and psychiatry at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. I think everybody's intrigued by this idea. They're part of a history that isn't just about the genes that they have, their DNA, that it's also about the experiences that occurred before them to their ancestors. I think this is such a powerful idea. Rachel Yehuda's compelling work probes how traumatic experiences affect our biology. She's studied war veterans, survivors of the Holocaust, of the September 11 attacks, and their offspring. She's Professor of Neuroscience and Psychiatry at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. This idea that we have a tool to be able to investigate whether or not people carry the effects of ancestral trauma in their genes, I mean, that's a very, very seductive thing. And that's why a lot of people are working on it. And the seductive tool she's referring to is an exploding field of science right now. It's called epigenetics. Scientists have dived in, so have lifestyle gurus. I tell you genes control your life. And some, it seems, wear both hats. And then I go, okay, wait, you don't like your traits? And you say, but I can't change my genes either. Well, that makes you a victim. Cell biologist Bruce Lipton rails against the idea that your genes determine your destiny on the speaker circuit and with books like The Biology of Belief and Spontaneous Evolution. He describes himself as bridging science and spirit. We must return the power back to the individuals because we are more powerful than a genetic machine. We are the creator of this life. And he argues that the science of epigenetics is the key. The suggestion being that the experiences you have, the choices you make, the foods you eat, the environment you grew up in might play a role in switching important genes on and off in your body. But epigenetics is still a fledgling field, so... Beware of the hype. Oh, yeah, so much hype (laughs) in epigenetics. But you boil this concept down into such simple language and you make it sound so easy. I mean, is it that easy for you to write or did you have to really work at it? 
Again, it's a habit you form. I mean, I'm a science broadcaster, so I'm all about not being intimidated by complex information. I simply refuse to be intimidated by complex information. I love reading complex information and trying to figure it out, understand it. That's what you do. You read a scientific paper, you nut it out, and then you work out, how do I honour this content? How do I maintain accuracy? Because I'm a journalist, it's all about accuracy. But how do I bring this alive for a general audience? How do I bring this complex science alive in a way that will mean something to someone? I'm like a pig in mud when I get to do that. (laughs) But, yeah, it doesn't come easily. I mean, what it does, it involves a lot of reading for me. That's the approach I take. I'm pretty thorough in my preparation for interviews. I'm thorough in making sure I understand what I'm reporting on. So then I can strip away the complexity and maintain accuracy but make it sound really straightforward. But I'm still making sure that I'm not simplifying to the point of dumbing it down or underestimating the intelligence of my audience or listener. So it's quite a, a quite a, a juggle, but it's a fun one. Right. And I think that's one of the conflicts that journalists, especially audio journalists, are always struggling with, that you have to have a narrative that is easy for your listeners to understand. You're always stripping stuff away. Mm-hmm. But, you know, your instinct is to have all this detail, to show that you understand it and to be able to reflect all of the various nuances. So how, how do you go about balancing those out? That is the ultimate challenge of radio, isn't it? And I just reckon that's part of the art that you develop. When you interview someone for radio, that's an incredibly generous act. You are capturing someone's either expertise or their life story or whatever it is. They're giving you their time. They don't know what you're going to do with the material. You know, you might record for an hour with them or more, five hours or spend three days with them. There's an incredible amount of trust that is embedded in that relationship. Now, that doesn't mean you might be an investigative journalist and you might be really trying to nail them to the post for doing something really bad or corrupt or evil. But there's still a trust. They've given you their time and their story, so you have to honour that with accuracy. But also you you want to honour your listener, and there's a trust in that relationship too. So you want to create a compelling story out of complex information. You just have to keep stripping back, stripping back, and then read what you've got. Listen to what you've got. Does this honour the content that I've collected? And also, it's also about not telling too many stories. It's keeping a simple through line, isn't it? What's the essence of what I'm telling for this story? I can follow up again on all the other stuff in another story. And that's a really hard thing to do often, to maintain focus. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we kind of say it's letting go of your babies. That's right. Killing your darlings. It's not a very nice statement, actually. (laughs) (laughs) But um, that's kind of what it is. You fall in love with your material and then you've just, and sometimes you come to hate it as well, but you ultimately strip it back until you love it again. So a lot of the work that you do is long form nowadays. Um, But how how different is it for students who might be working towards short form pieces? I, I reckon the principles are the same. You're just telling less of a story in a short form five minute package. You get to play more in 
a longer feature podcast or otherwise. But the principles are universal. You still get to play with all the different elements that you're seeking to build into a story, archive, script, interviews with your talent, location recordings, music. You still get to play with all that. It's just like writing a short story. The story arc is often exactly the same as it would be over half an hour. It's just truncated. And in fact, the discipline that you form in doing short form radio or podcasts is really, really excellent for everything that comes afterwards. One of the hardest things is ending like finding your ending at any stage, it's often a struggle. You know, you've got your script and then you just don't know how to end it. What kind of tips can you give? Well, I feel like the end is just like the beginning. It's about being powerful. It's about selecting from your audio that you've got something that just packs a punch that leaves someone breathless. Your goal is to have kept them listening in the car for the entire journey And in fact, they've arrived at their destination and they haven't got out of the car. They've stayed in the car. People call it car door radio, you know, car door moments. In in the States, it's the driveway moment. The driveway moment where you've got home from work and you just can't go in. You know, the kids are waiting for you and nah, you're you're still there listening. The dog needs a walk. Nah, you're still listening. So for me, I often pick the most powerful audio for up the top and again the most powerful audio for at the end and often at the end I don't script an end I don't write a script and present a kind of bookend because I think that sounds a bit naff your talent can do that for you and it's often a concluding statement or something that a sum up or a lesson learnt or a profound comment that kind of embodies the story you've heard so far or a call to arms, a call to action, something passionate. This should never happen again. Something like that. I've noticed that in our conversation, you keep mentioning about how you got feedback and people told you things and then you changed it. Is that part of your process then that you play stuff before it goes out and you get lots of people to listen? I don't get lots of people to listen. I usually get one person to listen, a producer that might be working with me or a colleague to get their ear. Often it's also to help you cut back because you've got it down to 45 minutes and you've got another 15 minutes to cut and how the hell are you going to do that? Oh, the torture. (laughs) (laughs) Some people, if they're constructing a story and they're struggling with what the focus of it is and what story they're trying to tell, they'll go home and talk to their partner or their mother or their boyfriend, their girlfriend, whatever, their dog, I don't know, just to talk through a story and someone will go, well, I don't reckon that's that interesting. It's always important to get some kind of feedback. And don't be frightened of feedback. If you were to come and do a piece for me and the first draft of your script was something that I kind of went, well, that's interesting, and then we scrubbed it and we got you to do it again, that's cool. Just go with it because being in this business is about learning to take feedback and learning to give good feedback. It's a mutual thing and it's a habit you form and it's very important. That's such great advice. Just before we finish, can you give me your two top tips on writing for radio? Listen to a heap of good radio and audio. You cannot, you cannot make radio or audio stories without listening to lots of other stuff. 
do not think you can get away with that. You can't. And write for one person. Write for one listener. And less is more. Strip back your scripts to bare bones and they will sound like poetry. Before you go, I think you have a task for our listeners. I thought that it would be interesting, given that you have been doing interviews and recording interviews of your own with other people, if you could take one of those interviews and turn it into a mini radio story. We would like you to make a three and a half minute story, thereabouts. We want you to script an intro and we want you to edit that story so that you've got a couple of pieces of script in the middle. So you're actually building a little story. You're going to have some script, a little bit of the interview, and then you might have a linking bit of script, another bit of the interview. You might be leaping with another bit of script into another section of the interview. Create a little package, a short package with just one talent, you and your interviewee. Perfect. Thank you so much. Unreal. This has been fun. Thank you so much, Louisa. Masterclass is produced and edited by Buffy Gorilla and Ruby Schwartz. It's recorded in the Hallwood Recording Studio by Gavin Neighbour. The original concept is by Anders Furs. Our theme tune is by Susie Wilkins. And it's all brought to you by the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Thanks for listening. Thank you.